Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. The Golden Rule has the distinction of being the most applauded and least applied maxim in the world. Everyone loves it. No one does it. A big part of the reason is that we tend to consider the rule by itself and outside the context in which Jesus gave it. It's significant that Jesus begins the Golden Rule with therefore, which is a word we quickly skip over but shouldn't. Jesus is signaling to us that the Golden Rule is the logical conclusion to everything he's preached in the Sermon on the Mount thus far. Not only that, but the rule follows immediately on Jesus' assurances that the Father loves us and loves to give us good gifts, and therefore we ought not lose heart, but to keep on asking, seeking, and knocking in faith, looking to the Father for His blessing. Therefore, Jesus says, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. It's only the Father's love and power that makes sense of the golden rule in a fallen world. Otherwise, it's a nice idea, but a crazy thing to do. In a Nietzschean world, the golden rule is weakness. In God's world, it's power. But only if we understand and apply it biblically as Jesus intended. The rule is brilliantly subversive. It doesn't ask us to empathize with others, which we have little capacity to do, but to empathize with ourselves, which we have unlimited capacity to do. It entices us with the words, whatever you want. I mean, any rule that opens with whatever you want has got to be a great rule, right? But if we really think about whatever we want, we begin to realize that there's a subtle yet significant difference between whatever we want and whatever we want others to do to us. Most of us can recall situations where, looking back, we're very thankful God or a fellow human being refused to give us what we wanted and instead gave us what we needed. And that's what we really want others to do to us, to seek our good with the heart and mind of Christ without any ulterior motive. Okay, says Jesus, now that you know what you really want from others, start doing it for others. I hope you enjoy the sermon. Thanks for listening. This morning we come to Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12. We're considering the Gospel of Matthew and lately the Sermon on the Mount. So this is Matthew chapter 7 verse 12, a very important and significant verse in the Bible. All the verses in the Bible are significant, but it's kind of like a range of mountains. Some peaks are higher than others, and this is one of the highest peaks in all of Scripture. So let's consider the Word of God. Jesus says, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Let us pray. God and Father, we give you thanks for your Word and We pray now that you would open up this very important word to us, 
that it would wash over us in and through us, that it would fill us up, make us like Christ himself, that we could carry out the word, be glorifying to you, and be a faithful witness to the world. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we come to Jesus' statement of what's been called the Golden Rule. And the Golden Rule is well named, not only because it really does sum up our duty of love to one another, but also because everyone loves the Golden Rule. No one disagrees with the golden rule. If you were to go out across the world and take a survey, I dare say you would not find one person on the face of the earth who would disagree with the golden rule. It's universally applauded, and yet it also holds another distinction. No one does it. There isn't a maxim among men that is so well-loved and so thoroughly ignored as the golden rule. And that's another good reason for us to take a fresh look at this well-known rule. So let's begin where Jesus begins, which is also where he ends, and that is with the reasons for the rule, the reasons for the rule. Now notice that the golden rule does not begin with whatever you want men to do to you, or the more popular uh, version, do unto others. That's not where the rule begins. It begins with this little word, therefore. The first word in the golden rule is therefore. And this is very important because it indicates that the golden rule ties in with and follows from what Jesus has already preached to us in the Sermon on the Mount. The golden rule is the logical conclusion to everything Jesus has preached up to this point, and it's a lot that he's preached. The golden rule is the logical conclusion to what Jesus preached early on in chapters 5 and 6 about the law of God. And that's why Jesus ends up saying, for this is the law and the prophets, and we'll talk more about that in just a minute. But the golden rule is also the logical conclusion to what Jesus has just preached to us in chapters 6 and 7 about our relationship to God as our Father and about His promise to love us, to care for us, to provide for us, and to answer our prayers for help. So, Jesus says this, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. In other words, this is not only the logical conclusion of everything Jesus has preached in the Sermon on the Mount, it's also the logical conclusion more specifically of what Jesus has just told us about the Father's love for us, His command for us to keep on asking, Keep on seeking, keep on knocking, because he will give good gifts to his children far more faithfully and surely than we give good gifts to our own children. And for that reason, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. And when you think about it, the Father's promise is the only thing that makes sense of keeping the golden rule in a fallen world. And I think that's why the golden rule is so little kept, because people instinctively and very quickly realize that if I start doing this, 
before I know everybody else is going to start doing this, I'm just setting myself up. I'm just going to be a perpetual doormat. I'm just going to be, uh, I'm just going to have a big target on me. Kick me. Take advantage of me. And so people's instinct as sinners for self-preservation, it really isn't self-preservation, but that's our instinct. It keeps us from following the golden rule in a following uh, world because we think it's just going to allow others to take advantage of us perpetually. The golden rule only makes sense in a fallen world if the Father is at work. It only makes sense if this is the Father's world. It only makes sense if, fa- if the Father is saving this world. It only makes sense if the Father has made us His children and has made us these promises. It only makes sense if the power of the Father is greater than the power that is in the world. And therefore, the power that is in us is greater than He who is in the world. It only makes sense if the Father is showing His power and establishing His kingdom through His children keeping this rule. And that exactly is the case. Because God has adopted you in Christ as His children, because He has uh, bestowed His love upon you, He has given you His Son... He has promised to give you everything else thrown in with him. He has assured you that he loves you. He has assured you that he will never abandon you. Because he has promised to hear your prayers, because he promises to answer you and bless you, therefore, keep the golden rule. So in other words, Jesus is telling us this golden rule this great idea that everybody applauds, but everybody thinks is, is insane in a fallen world. This crazy rule is how you line yourself up with the Father's work and with His blessing in the world and in your life personally. So the first reason Jesus gives us for keeping the golden rule is because it's the logical conclusion to everything He has told us thus far. If we believe what Jesus has said, if we believe why he has come, if we believe what he has taught us about the Father and being his children, then the golden rule is going to make sense. And only then will the golden rule make sense in terms of us personally doing it. Now, the second reason Jesus gives us for the golden rule is at the end of the rule where he says, for this is the law and the prophets. Um, in other words, the rule, the golden rule, is the practical implication of the second great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says that all the law and the prophets, and there, there's that similar language. He, he has the similar language that he attaches to the golden rule as the language that he attaches to uh, the two great commandments. Jesus says, all the law and the prophets hang on the two commandments. Love God with all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. And now Jesus gives us the golden rule and says, this is the law and the prophets. So if you want to know how to love your neighbor as yourself, if you want to know that's a great concept, I know it's right, but how do I put that into practice? The answer is the golden rule. This is what you do. Whatever you want others to do to you, do also to them. 
This is the methodology. This is the hands and the feet of the second great commandment. And what that means is that the golden rule applies across the board in every circumstance. When applied sincerely and biblically, the golden rule will never fail to show you what love would do and therefore what you should do. With that in mind, then, let's consider the rule itself. The rule is, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. So let's break this down. Notice that the rule does not begin with others. The rule begins with us. Further, the rule does not begin with how we ought to treat others, but what we want others to do to us. It doesn't begin with how we ought to act toward others. It begins with how we want others to treat us. And here we begin to see the beauty and the brilliance of the golden rule. And also, I would say, the sneakiness of the golden rule. You know, not all sneakiness is bad. And the golden rule is sneaky good. It is sneaky good. Uh, Because the, the rule doesn't ask us to empathize with others, something which we have little capacity to do. The golden rule asks us to empathize with ourselves, which we have a boundless capacity to do. So we first must identify what it is we want others to do toward us, how we want them to treat us, how we want them to act toward us. And that's a, you know, we're used to that concept, we're used to hearing it, but most of us have spent very little time, if any time, really thinking about that question. Now, on the front end, it seems like a great question to ponder. I mean, any question that begins with these three words, whatever you want, any question that begins with whatever you want sounds like a fun question, doesn't it? Sounds like a great question. And so that's the carrot. And we go jump into this thing, whatever I want. I like the sound of that. But then when we begin to look at the rule more deeply, we realize that this is really a very deep rule. We've been pulled into this, and it ends up being a very searching question, and it ends up really exposing us. It really ends up exposing our hearts. Because notice that the golden rule is not asking what we want. It's not asking what we want. It's asking what we want others to do toward us. Now, it may sound like those are the same thing, but if you think about it, you'll realize that there is a huge difference between what I want and how I want others to treat me. And this is where the golden rule begins to expose us. If you you think it through, um, well, let me put it this way. Um, Have you ever looked back on a particular time in your life and thought, I am so glad that God did not give me what I wanted. I am so glad he gave me instead what I needed. And I didn't like it at all at the time. But now that I look back, I am so glad that he gave me not what I wanted, but what I needed. And that's part of the difference between what I want and how I really want others to treat me. Unless we're crazy, 
we realize that what we want and what we need are not always the same thing. And we also realize that at the end of the day, what we really want is what we need and not necessarily just what we want at the time. Big picture, what we want is what we need. And um, unless we're crazy when we think it through, we realize that whenever what we need and what we want differ, what we want from God and what we want from other people is really the same thing. What we really want is our good. What we really want is what we need. And what it comes down to is this. We want God to seek our good, right? And that's what we want from other people when you really think it through. We want other people to seek our good. We want them to seek our blessing. And we want them to have the mind and the heart of Christ when it comes to determining what our good is and helping us along that way. We don't want them just deciding that on their own, do we? That sounds very dangerous. We want them in their minds to be submitted to Christ, have the mind of Christ, and we want in the way that they act toward us to have the heart of Christ. And so that's what we want. We want others to love us as themselves and to put it in practice in submission to Christ and His Word. So I would submit, I want you and I urge you to please spend some time thinking about this because this stuff is not so obvious. Think about it. Think about what do you really want from other people, big picture. How do you really want them to treat you? How do you want them to act towards you, big picture? And I would submit to you that if you're doing this sincerely and prayerfully, that that's what you're going to come to. You want other people to seek your good and your blessing. You want them to love you as themselves and to put it into practice in submission to Christ. And so that's the bottom line I think you're going to come to. Uh, but we have to think this through, or else we're never going to come to the bottom line. And until we come to the bottom line, until we come to grips with that, then we haven't even gotten to first base in terms of applying the golden rule. We can't begin to apply the golden rule until we've really come to grips with what we really want from other people. <clears throat> and once we do that, we get to the second part of the golden rule, which is the very simple little phrase, do also to them. Once you've come to grips with how you really want others to act towards you, then you're ready to move on to this second part. Do also to them. Now notice that the golden rule doesn't say, identify what you want and then get others to do it for you. It doesn't say, be nice to other people so you can get other people to be nice to you. And it never says that other people are going to treat you as you want to be treated if you treat them as you want to be treated. And that's something I'll come back to. Notice the rule never says that. It simply says, do also to them. Treat them as you really want to be treated. Not, on, not in some shallow way, but in a really deep way. In other words, love them as yourself. And put that into action in submission to Christ. Because you want them to have the mind and heart of Christ uh, when it comes to them determining what is your good and seeking your good. And so you need to have the heart and mind of Christ 
when you begin to do the same for them. So those are the basics of the rule, and let's give some thought now to applying the rule, applying the golden rule. Well, we've seen the connection between the golden rule and the second great commandment, and basically they interpret one another. If you, if you want to know what the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, you want to know what that looks like, you want to know what that means, you want to know how to put that in the action, you go to the golden rule. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. But the reverse is also true. If you come to the golden rule and you're thinking about that, whatever I want men to do for me, I need to do for them, what does that mean exactly? Well, go to the second great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I think it's helpful if you think of this like the rear sight and the front sight on a rifle. Okay? A rear sight and a front sight on a rifle. In a fallen world, we need both. In a fallen world, it's not enough to have a rear sight. It's not enough to have love God with all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. We need something else. We need a front sight that you line up the rear sight with so you know that you're aiming at the right target and you know what you're going to hit. If you only have a rear sight, being sinners as we are, we don't really know what we're aiming at. We're going to get off target and we're certainly not going to hit the proper target and then we end up just shooting things up, don't we? Shoot ourselves in the foot, shoot other people. That's what we do when all we have is a rear sight. But... If you have a rear sight and a front sight and you apply them, line them up sincerely and biblically and prayerfully, it's not ever going to fail to show you what you should be doing. Now, this is something that we see, this methodology, this kind of rear sight, front sight methodology. We see this in scriptures. Um, We see it in the Ten Commandments. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, Uh, Love God with all that you are. Love your neighbors yourself. This is the law and the prophets. What he's telling us is um, when you're looking at our love duties, love toward God and love toward neighbor, okay, if you're looking at that, whatever you're looking at immediately right now, right in front of you, that's your rear sight. And you need a front sight. So what the front sight then, that's what the Ten Commandments are. The Ten Commandments give you a front sight for the rear sight of the two great commandments. Right? That tells you that if you're lining this up right, loving God and loving your neighbor means you're not ever going to have another God before God. You're always going to worship Him as God. You're not going to have any idols. You're not going to take His name lightly. You know, you're, you're not going to murder in anything that it means. You're not going to commit adultery. You're not going to do these things if you're lining up the rear sight with the front sight. On the other hand, if you're going to the Ten Commandments and you're starting with them, Okay, that's your rear sight. What you need is a front sight. And the front sight becomes love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, And we can see, uh, for example, the Apostle John doing this rear sight, front sight thing in his first epistle. He talks a lot in that epistle about how we can know how we can know certain things, how we can know the love of God, how we can know that we are the children of God. And those kind of things. And the thing he says that he talks about knowing, that becomes the rear sight. He never points to it. He always points to something else. And what he's doing is lining up the rear sight with the front sight. 
So, for example, he says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Okay, we know we've passed from death to life. There's your rear sight. How do you know this? You need a front sight. Front sight is because we love the brethren. And basically, when it comes to loving God and loving one another, he, he keeps switching them in terms of rear sight or front sight. He says, he says um, here is how you know if you love God. Okay, that's your rear sight. That's what you want to know about. How do you know if you love God? He gives you a front sight. He says, if you love one another. That's how you know. But then he also turns it around. In chapter 5, he says, by this we know that we love the children of God. Okay, now loving one another is the rear sight. How do you know that? You need a front sight. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and keep his commandments. So that becomes the front sight now. And I think that's what we have uh, going on here, and we need to remember this. I think it's very important. If we sincerely and biblically identify how we want to be treated, it's going to comport perfectly with the law of love as expounded and applied by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Just as the Ten Commandments gives us a front sight for the rear sight of the two great commandments, so the Sermon on the Mount gives us a front sight for the rear sight of the golden rule and vice versa. Okay? So whichever one you're considering, that's the rear sight, and the other one becomes the front sight by which you can ensure you're aiming at the right target and that you're going to hit it. Now, this was a big part of the problem of the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus is, is going at in much of the Sermon on the Mount. The scribes and the Pharisees had a rear sight with no front sight. And their rear sight was the Ten Commandments. And they're just all over that. They're constantly talking about the law. They're talking about the Ten Commandments and the other provisions of the law. The problem was they had no front sight to line it up with, and therefore their aim was horribly off. What they were telling people to do, what they were aiming at, and what they were hitting was completely off from what God actually intended. And so the Sermon on the Mount is where Jesus is saying to the scribes and Pharisees, basically, you guys are shooting up everything. You're shooting yourself. You're shooting other people. You're shooting up God's house. And you need a front sight. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's a front sight for the law to show what God really intended. Okay? So... We don't want to fall into the trap of the scribes and Pharisees. We don't want to be Christians who have a rear sight and no front sight. And that's what we tend to do. We always, as people, we have certain personalities, certain things we like, certain proclivities, and we, and, and we tend to latch on to some aspect of the Word of God. And that becomes our theme. And that's great, but you've got to have a front sight. You always have to have a front side that you line it up with, or we're going to end up just as horribly off as the scribes and the Pharisees uh, were. Okay, so if we use the rear side and front side, um, with it, when it comes to the golden rule, so we take the golden rule now, which is the front side for love your neighbor as yourself, but now we're considering the golden rule, so it's the rear side. We need to look at, okay, what's our front side? We look at the Sermon on the Mount. It becomes the front sight. 
what are some of the things that we're going to want and not want in terms of how others treat us? And I'm just kind of running through the themes of the Sermon on the Mount here. Well, first of all, we're going to want people, anybody who's dealing with us, we're going to want them to be people who have a rear sight and a front sight. Otherwise, we don't know what they're shooting at. They're liable to shoot us up, shoot everybody up. We want people who get it. We want Christians who have a rear sight and a front sight. The second thing we want is people who have a big handle, a big handle by which God can grab them. And the big handle in, in uh, Scripture is what is called humility. Humility. We want people who are dealing with us, acting toward us, to be people who have a big handle by which God can grab them and say, hey, wait a minute. Right? And that handle is humility. So we want people to act toward us with humility. And so that means we need to act toward them. We need to be people who have a rear sight and a front sight when we're dealing with others. And we need to be people who have a big handle by which God can grab us at any moment and say, Hey, you, listen to me. We want them to be people who have a big handle, and that is humility. Thirdly, we want people who are dealing with us to be people who are people of sincerity of heart. Sincerity of heart toward God and toward others. We don't want people to be duplicitous people, people who have ulterior motives. They say one thing, but they're thinking another thing. They say something so they can get us to do another thing. We don't want anybody to deal with us that way. And what that means is we need to be people of sincere heart toward God. We genuinely want to please Him and walk with Him. And a sincere heart toward others. We genuinely want to seek their good and their blessing, and that's how we deal with them. Now, the next one is kind of a, a continuation of that one. When people are dealing with us, we always want people who have pure motives. We never want people to be manipulative when they're dealing with us, do, they, do we? We never want people to say something or do something for effect in order to move us this way or to move us that way or to do something nice for us in order to indebt us to them, you know, like a ring giver, like the Godfather, does all kinds of favors for all kinds of people. But that debt's going to come due one day. That debt's going to come due one day. And that's what it's about. Well, nobody wants other people to deal with them in that way. And what that means is we need to deal with others in, out of pure motives, we need to not be manipulative people. We need to not be the sort of people who are seeking to place other people in our debt or to make other people what psychologists would call be codependent on us or to assume some kind of orbit around us. We become the center of their universe, practically speaking. And we can disguise it in all sorts of ways, but that's it. Well, we don't want, nobody wants other people to deal with them that way. And we need to make sure we're not dealing with others in that way. The next thing that we want uh, when other people are acting toward us is no hypocrisy. We don't want hypocrisy. We don't want them to have one standard for themselves and another standard for us. 
We don't want them looking at us at a squinty eye and straining at gnats when it comes to us and swallowing camels when it comes to them. We don't want people to do that. If there's anything that's universally, universally uh, abhorred, it's hypocrisy. But um, the irony is, if there's anything that's universally practiced, it's hypocrisy. So we all hate it. We all recognize it immediately in other people, but we all tend to do it. Nobody likes it, so we need to make sure that we're not hypocritical. We don't apply one standard to ourselves and another standard to other people. The other thing that we want, uh, Jesus covers in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, from other peoples in dealing with us is we want loyalty. We want loyalty and we want commitment. We don't want people showing up in our lives and saying, I don't think you ought to do this, you ought to do this, and they're doing all these things, and we have no sense of commitment from them. We have no sense that they're committed to us through thick and thin. We have no sense that they're loyal to us. And therefore, we don't have any sense that they're really seeking for our good and our blessing. And we don't want people who lack that to really be dealing with us, right? That means that we need to turn that around. And that means that when we deal with one another, there needs to be an upfront commitment. As we're members of the household of God, there needs to be an upfront commitment to one another, not... You know, if you're willing to make a few changes, I would be willing to be your friend. That's not the way it works. It's the other way around. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. If God, God has irrevocably committed himself to all of us, how then do we stand back and say, I'm going to make my commitment to you conditional? I have a few things. I have a few things here I'd like you to do before I commit myself. God didn't do that. None of us would ever be saved if God took that approach. He commits himself. It's like the old, uh, old joke about uh, uh, ham and eggs. You know, they say uh, the chicken is involved, but the pig is committed. And so we, that's what we want for one another because that's what God does for us. And we want to be like him. Another thing that we want, and this is kind of a further application of other ones I've mentioned, is... We want people to be compassionate toward us. We, we don't really want people to be blind toward us. We don't want them to be blind to our faults because they really can't seek our good then. But we do want them to be compassionate. Um, we don't want them to have a judgmental attitude. We're, we want them to have discernment, but we don't want them to be judgmental, and we all know the difference. We immediately recognize it in others so we need to recognize it in ourselves. We don't want them to have a criticalness. We don't want them to use criticism, even when it's true, as a form of manipulation. Because that, that's one of the main manipulative tools. We get into these kind of a system of rewards and punishments with one another. It's one of the main means of control, the carrot and the stick. Manipulative people use it all the time. We use the carrot and the stick. We punish, we reward, we punish. And we go back and forth to move people, to get them to be and to do what we want them to be and do. Well, nobody wants other people to deal with them in that way. We want people to deal with us straight up in sincerity of heart, with compassion. We want them to, to see us and to have discernment and therefore to be able to help us. But we don't want them to be judgmental or critical. And that kind of leads to the final thing. 
we don't want people to leave us to ourselves. We don't want people to say, well, I'm not going to be judgmental. I'm not going to be critical. And it's just, just like, live your life. Hey, don't hassle me. I want to hassle you. Well, when you really think about it, none of us wants that. Because that person is not seeking our blessing. It says in the Bible, faithful are the wounds of a friend. If it comes from loyalty and commitment, somebody who has a rear sight and a front sight, somebody who has a big handle, who really wants to walk with God, somebody who's got sincerity of heart, pure motives, no hypocrisy, they have loyalty and commitment uh, toward us, they're compassionate, they're not judgmental, and so forth. We should want that person, when we've got some way that we're shooting our own selves in the foot, that they can come to us and say, brother, sister, this is what I'm seeing. You're shooting yourself in the foot, you're shooting other people in the foot here. Okay? So we don't want them to leave us to ourselves. Not really. Uh, here's, I, I've talked about the analogy of a rear sight and a front sight to help us uh, kind of see this. I want to give you another analogy that I think helps um, for us to see how all of this works. And that is this. We are all patients and nurses in the great physician's hospital. We're all patients and nurses in the great physician's hospital. We're all in the hospital, okay? Because we're sick, we're damaged, we're messed up, our bones don't line up correctly, our thought is not correct, we've got all these issues. And it's God's hospital, it's not our hospital. It's not our gig. It's his hospital. He's the great physician. He's the one who is working to to break bones and reset them, which is not fun. He's the one who is working to do surgery, to do heart surgery when we need it, which is also not fun. And so he's working on all of us. But we're also, we're patients. We're also nurses. I mean, who's running this place? Well, that's the great physician. But who's working here? Hey, I need something. Who works here? All of you, all of me. We're also nurses. And um, we run into problems if we see ourselves only as a nurse. Only as a nurse. I'm here to draw your blood. You just had surgery. Get up out of bed. We're going to walk around the ward. Get up. I'm the nurse. Listen to me. Okay, uh, we don't want somebody who's only a nurse. It's also a problem if we see ourselves as only a patient. Oh, I had just had surgery. I just had surgery. They broke my bones. They reset them. They did heart surgery while they were in there. I'm a patient. I need some more ice. I need some ice cream. I need some jello. I need. Uh, I need. I need so much. I'm just so needy because I'm a patient. We don't want people to deal with us who think they're only a patient, which means they're never going to give us anything. I mean, it's just like it's all about their needs and their needs and their needs and their needs. But we also don't want a person who just thinks they're a nurse. We want somebody who also knows what surgery feels like, what it feels like to have a bone broken and reset. And, and, and we want them to think about how, how what they really want when they're a patient in the hospital, 
That helps them to be a good nurse when they're dealing with us, and it helps us to be a good nurse when dealing with them. So I think it's very helpful to always remember we're all patients in the Great Physicians Hospital, but there are no nurses in this hospital except for us. And we have to help one another. But when it comes to helping somebody else, don't forget that you're a patient too. And if, if, you're, if this idea of being a patient, if you're thinking about uh, being a patient and you're going, well, I don't think I've ever had surgery. I don't think I've ever had my bone broken and reset. I, I've never had that happen. You need to do some deep soul searching if you don't think you've ever had that because you're seeing yourself as a nurse and you're a gung-ho about helping everybody else and you're not seeing your needs. Maybe you haven't had a bone broken and reset. Maybe you haven't had heart surgery, but you needed it. The question is, why haven't you had it? Because I guarantee you, you need it. And you need to be asking yourself, okay, how come I'm in this hospital and I'm a patient and I need these things and how come I've never had them and so I don't know what it feels like? So we need to, to, to know what it means to be a patient in order to be a good nurse. And we also need to know about being a nurse in order so that we can be good patients. Now, the last thing I want to leave you with uh, in the golden rule is just this. There's no promise attached to this rule. There is no promise attached to this rule. Just like there's no promise attached to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus just tells us to do it. Now, to be honest, there is an implied promise. There's an implied promise of general blessing that's attached to every commandment that God gives. There's an implied promise to everything Jesus tells us to do in the Sermon on the Mount that the blessings he talks about in the Beatitudes are going to come over time to those people. But nevertheless, God oftentimes gives us a command with a specific promise attached. I mean, we just had some. Ask. Seek. Knock, it will be open to you. It's not necessarily going to be immediate, but God promises to do it. But we don't have any specific promise attached to this rule. And I think this is one of the main reasons why we have so much difficulty in putting this rule into practice. Because it's very difficult for us to sincerely begin to try to do this toward other people without developing the expectation that immediately that person's going to be transformed and start to do the golden rule or our concept of the golden rule back to us. We implicitly expect that as soon as we start trying to keep the golden rule, others are immediately going to begin to treat us as we want to be treated. Uh, but that's not what Jesus promises here. We expect this to happen when it doesn't. Then we start treating other people the way they're treating us or the way we think they're treating us. And this is one of the main reasons why the golden rule is universally applauded and rarely ever applied. So we need to come to grips with the fact that Je what Jesus is commanding us to do and that he is not promising us immediate reciprocal results. Now, 
we started by noticing that this is indeed one of the ways that the Father works to change the world, right? It's one of the golden rule. His children keeping the golden rule is one of the ways God the Father changes the world. But he, this is a long process, and he doesn't always change the world when and how we want or as quickly as we want. And we need to focus on what Jesus is telling us to do. We need to come to grips with this. Jesus is just telling us to do it, just like he just tells us to love our neighbor as ourself. And this is where our faith really gets tested. If keeping the golden rule or even coming somewhere approximate to it produced immediately result, immediate results, it wouldn't take much faith, would it? You could get people lining up around the block to keep the golden rule if it produced immediate reciprocal results. But it doesn't. It doesn't necessarily do that. And therefore, the golden rule takes a lot of faith. It takes a lot of faith in the Father. And it takes a lot of love and commitment to God and to other people. It takes real faith that the Father will bless us over the long haul, even when we don't get immediate results. So keep that in mind. Keep also in mind the concept of the rear sight and the front sight. And finally, keep in mind the whole idea that we're all both patients and nurses in the great physician's hospital. And I think those three primary things will help you to understand and to apply the golden rule and over time to experience God's blessing and to see his power working through you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.